How did modern notions of justice develop? What do ancient Greek tragedies have to teach modern American audiences? Where do you direct feelings of anger or even vengeance when they're so intense they could set the world on fire? Welcome to Sentience, a podcast from Trinity University about how people experience, understand, and express the world. I'm your host, Kyle Gillette, the special advisor to the Provost for Expression and Civil Discourse. And today I'm talking to my colleague and collaborator, Dr. Tom Jenkins from Classical Studies. Professor Jenkins, who has also served as the chair of the department and the director of the Collaborative for Learning and Teaching, is a scholar of classical reception. He focuses on how contemporary media adapts texts from the ancient world. His work includes the book Antiquity Now, lots of articles on TV, film, and graphic novel adaptations of Homer and Hesiod, and other ancient texts. Dr. Jenkins teaches a variety of classes, including Reimagining Tragedy, a course that he and I have co-taught for years that involves students learning about different adaptations of ancient Greek and Roman tragedies and also creating their own. For the past year, he has been working on a new translation of Aeschylus' play Agamemnon, the first part of the Oresteia trilogy. I'm directing a production of it that opens February 16th and runs through February 24th, right here at Trinity University in the Stirin Theater. It's my great joy to welcome my colleague and friend, Dr. Tom Jenkins. So I'm here with Dr. Thomas Jenkins, or as I call him, Tom. You and I have worked together for, gosh, 15 years in different venues. You're a professor in the classical studies department, right? How long have you been? I have been here since 2001, so going on 23 years. And what kind of classes and scholarship do you do? So I am known as a philologist, so a lover of words. Uh, Therefore, I am a literature specialist. So I have taught Greek and Latin uh, at all levels since I got here. I teach many different genres, history, epic, As we'll discover today, I've been teaching lots and lots of drama. I've been doing more and more. And my scholarly focus the past 15 years or so, since we met uh, actually, has been looking at how the classical world is transformed in modern media, Mm. or when it's adapted or transcribed or staged or filmed, and how ancient myths in particular can inform social issues in the ancient world as well as the modern world. Mm. And that's what I've been working on most. So there's a couple of different places you've been working on that. Your your last book and a lot of things is about reception. That's kind of a term of art. What does reception mean? Yeah, reception isn't a lovely term. Mm. And we have been trying to come up with different words uh, to describe what we do. And we keep falling back on receiving. But receiving is how a target culture Uh, say, America or Europe or Africa, receives or absorbs the work or art of another artist or another culture. But receiving sounds really passive, and actually that action can be, well, active. It can be taking, say, Euripides Bacchae and creating a version of it in the American South or in Britain and London or whatever, or, or using rock and roll or modern techniques to bring an ancient play to life. And so reception works best when you have an idea of the aspects of an ancient myth or an ancient text that you want to bring to life and make work 
in a modern context. You know, one of these adaptations or riffs on the Bacchae you brought to my attention, the uh, Royal Theater of Scotland's version. Oh, David Grieg. Grieg, right, David Grieg. Yeah, so David Grieg, that became the version of the Bacchae that I used when I directed it, I guess about 10 or 12 years ago. And you brought that to my attention as this really juicy, gospel-infused, playing with the vernacular English in a different way. I was so excited. And then the production I directed really tried to go in that spirit. And you were really helpful in thinking about how to play with a classic. Will you say a little bit more about why you might want to do that with a classic, especially an ancient Greek tragedy, rather than just doing a new work that isn't necessarily connected to an old classic? So this actually brings up part of our relationship, which is we've been teaching a course called Reimagining Tragedy, in which we ask students and sometimes our peers, our colleagues, to take part of an ancient tragedy and make it new and vibrant and different by adding in often um, different elements like rock and roll or transferring it to a different medium entirely, like a podcast or a trailer. And one of the nicest bits of feedback we ever got from students at the end of the course, one of the students wrote, I was a little like wary about this course at first because I wanted to do original art. I wanted to be me. And then the student wrote, she realized that, no, actually it's one really hard to adapt Mm. because you have to put yourself in the mind frame of an alien culture, of an alien person. And two, it is in itself an act of originality to take somebody else's ideas that were cast into one form and to try to recast it in another form while keeping the essence there. So I think it's a false dichotomy to say that, oh, this is just a derivative or a restaging of the Bacchae. One, any staging of the Bacchae, a play by Euripides, is going to be a restaging. But you can radically adapt it so that it becomes not unrecognizable, but that certain elements really pop. And so, for instance, there's a newish novel called The Power. I think it's even been and now a miniseries on mm. Netflix or, or Amazon about what if women, biological women, suddenly had the power to shock men to death. <laughs> um, and there's a couple scenes in that novel straight out of Euripides' Bacchae, because the Bacchae is about women who have these like amazing powers. They can tear things apart, tear people apart with their bare hands. So I wouldn't say that power is a version of the Bacchae, but that novel has Bacchic elements in it. And so that's one way in which creativity and adaptation collide. Yeah, it's kind of a paradox that sometimes that act of adapting or riffing makes you more original or makes you think about what makes this distinctive or what what does this moment need? Why does this have to happen now or here? And that also comes up with play selection. So if someone is putting on a theater season, they want to do something classical. And like what classical plays are particularly urgent now? Yeah. And so there's a play by Sophocles called Philoctetes, which is about a soldier who on the way to Troy receives a wound from a snake, a snake bite that never heals. It separates, he smells bad, and he is so smelly and so disgusting that he's ostracized and marooned on this island because he is sick. It's not a play that's been done a lot. Oedipus gets done a lot. That's the famous play of Sophocles. Philoctetes is sort of an also-ran. But suddenly, with the pandemic, we had a lot of productions of Philoctetes, mostly online because it was a pandemic. But that really struck at our psyche 
yeah. uh, in a way, because it's a play about someone who, who, with a mask, feels lonely because they're sick and ostracized. They might have COVID. They might just think they have COVID. And so there's suddenly there's this boomlet yeah. because one play is responding so urgently uh, and so transparently to a contemporary social issue. And it hits different, not only than it would have before, but it hits differently than like a really topical on the nose about the pandemic play would because it feels like, oh, this is a kind of problem that has persisted or reemerged in different cultures is how how do you deal with the relationship between an individual and groups? How do you deal with the need to isolate someone or quarantine them? And what does it feel like to be quarantined? Another play, of course, that like hits different to use the vernacular now is something that we're working on right now. Your new translation of Aeschylus's Agamemnon, which is the first play in the trilogy, the Oresteia. So I have some thoughts about why that strikes a chord or is urgent now. Some of it very much about the conflict in the Middle East, but maybe also in Ukraine and lots of other places where war and its aftermath where the questions of justice, vengeance, and what's at stake in democracy have arisen. But will you say a little bit more about why you think we may have mutually decided that we should stage something from the Oresteia in 2024? Absolutely. So the Oresteia, which is a suite of three plays, a trilogy of three plays by Aeschylus, is an evergreen on college reading lists. Lots of people and lots of philosophers, lots of thinkers have read the Oresteia as a meditation on some of the big questions facing nations and democracies. It's a play about war. It's a play about gender. And mostly it's a literally a foundational myth about how we get the jury system. It's mm -hmm. the myth of the juridical system in the West as mediated through art, as mediated through drama. I've taught that play almost every other year for 25 years. There's always something happening in the world that yeah. resonates with the Oresteia because there is so much in it. When I was adapting the play last spring, and we could talk more about the, the impetus behind that, so much of the play is about two nations at war because of an infraction or a perceived infraction and the devastating consequences of an invasion. And the invasion of the Ukraine was very much in my mind when I was looking at passages describing Troy in the play, but also describing Ukraine last March. The first play in particular about Agamemnon is the setup, a really messy setup of all the things that can go wrong in society. And they are not, importantly, resolved by the end of the play. People think they are resolved by the end of the play, but they don't realize the characters within the play. There are two more plays coming. Yeah. In which all of the infractions of the first play need to be sorted out in order for a working democracy to be established by the end of the third play. So the setup for the first play is that Agamemnon, who is a king in Greece, has a brother, Menelaus, whose wife was stolen by Paris, who is the son of the king of Troy. And, and so this is Helen of Troy. This is Helen of Troy. So King Agamemnon rounds up a bunch of Greeks and sails off to, well, to rescue Helen, but also to do as much kind of pillaging as he possibly can once he, he gets to Troy. On the way there, he stops off on an island called Aulis. Things go badly there. There's an omen sent by the goddess Artemis for various reasons. That omen saying, 
that he has to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia, in order for the Greek ships to actually make it to Troy. So there's a political decision that needs to be made by Agamemnon, even in the pre-play, before the play, which is a personal decision. Is his daughter's life worth going to war for? And he decides, yes, it is. Absolutely. He needs to do this. So he sacrifices his daughter, goes to Troy, and he wins. Um, he sieges Troy. Troy falls. He takes back Helen. He takes back a lot of war booty. And he comes home to Argos. The problem is, of course, he has a family <laughs> who knows exactly what he has done. Particularly his wife, Clytemnestra, knows what he has done, that he has sacrificed their child. In the meantime, as he's been gone, she has taken a lover. She is ruling the state tyrannically. And I don't mean that necessarily negatively. Um, she's ruling like a tyrant because she was one. Um, and she hatches a plan, which is to kill Agamemnon. And she's going to murder the king in his bathtub. And she does. And that's basically the whole play. Mm. After the murder, everyone rushes on stage. There's lots of shouting, lots of recrimination, but lots of hand-wringing about what to do. Yeah. Because in the first play, it, it's readily apparent that there is no mechanism for establishing whether what she did was just or not. From her point of view, this was retaliation that's perfectly acceptable. From other people's point of view, this was not. But there's no judge. There's no jury. Can we talk a little bit about those other people, the chorus? So some people may be familiar in general with the idea of a Greek chorus as you know, a lot of people. Who are these people, these old men, or in our production, old folks who stayed behind, who didn't go fight at Troy? So as far as we know, Greek drama evolved from the chorus. The chorus is the oldest part of the drama. It probably came out of a, a ritual called a satyr dance in which men dressed up like half men, half goats and danced. At some point, a single actor stepped out of this chorus and had like single lines. And that's the first time that we get a division between like a hero and the people. The people come first, literally and temporally. So in this play, we get almost half the lines of the play are by the chorus who are the elders of Argos. They are the citizens of this polity that are being ruled over by Agamemnon and after Agamemnon's departure by his wife. And they are, in effect, us. The Athenians watching this know that they're not Argives, but they know that the Argives are the stand-ins for any citizens of any city-state who aren't the tyrants, who are the subjects. And they have thoughts. Yeah. As you and I have discovered in rehearsal, they have lots and lots of thoughts. Yeah. They have over half the play. And, and that's what makes Greek tragedy really hard, particularly the plays of Aeschylus, uh, because the chorus is so massive and because they have, they have lots of philosophical passages in which they rhapsodize about anything. They'll rhapsodize about the gods, rhapsodize about government, they'll rhapsodize about death and sickness and illness. Um, it's a repository of folkism. Yeah, that's great. And it's interwoven, too, with stories about the past, speculations about the future, arguments between them, but also with them and, say, Clytemnestra. It's a particularly interesting problem, and I don't mean problem pejoratively, but as a prompt for adapters, translators, directors, as well as designers and actors to engage when you're doing something. Like, how do you do the chorus? We don't really know everything about what the chorus might have meant to 
you know, fifth century BC Athenians, but it seems like something about this energy of music and dance and people who are, like you say, part of the citizenry as opposed to these individual heroes or individual tyrants. And we say a little bit more about the kind of prompt that that posed you and that opposes me as we're staging Agamemnon to have this big chorus that's like, what do you do with it? What did you do with it? So in antiquity, an advantage of the big chorus is you could have big, splashy musical numbers. Yeah. In antiquity, there would have been highly stylized, but also highly rehearsed dance numbers. And all those choral odes, and you get a, an intimation of that in English that odes is musical, really was music in the ancient world. So there's like these big choral passages with dance. So the chorus is the trickiest part for any adapter to handle. Because unless you're going to write a musical and have song and dance numbers, which the National Theater Scotland kind of did with their version of the Bacchae, and the Harlem Classical Theater just did a Bacchae that was also a musical. But you know, most Greek tragedies are not staged as musicals for obvious reasons. A musical is in itself its own art form, and it sets up different expectations. It's harder to get across lots of language in a musical because music slows everything down, just like opera. Opera yeah. librettos are slim. So by choosing to present this in play form, we were then allowed to do a lot more with the language. Most of the language of of the chorus has been kept. We were blessed with, as it turned out to be, a gigantic chorus. We have 22 in our chorus, so we can almost do a double chorus, meaning that we're able to take these actions of the chorus and play them off against each other. Even though the chorus is us, we are not univocal. The chorus when it splits into two or four or 22, they all have thoughts, some of which are common folk wisdom and some are absolutely individual responses to a citizen state, a citizenry in crisis. Yeah, which we too are a citizenry in crisis, right? Absolutely. So one of the things that matters to me about theater is that um, an audience is not a mass of unified responses, but instead individuals who are part of subgroups that have different identities that they bring and different affinities they bring, different backgrounds. And so I think a theater is interesting as a live event insofar as that is respected, that we have a microcosm of democracy in all of its messiness. And it really excited me, the idea that we could have a chorus that could have these different groups. I'm staging things so that they're literally out in the audience with them at certain points and that they create this opportunity for us to split up the lines in different ways. And I love how much your translation does something that maybe people wouldn't expect from a Greek tragedy, which is to play with irony in a way that's also quite comical, that the chorus is sometimes really funny um, when it talks to the named characters or even when they squabble over versions of history. So we're getting close to like, what were the principles that went into making this adaptation that you and I both kind of like laid out the ground rules for last spring? And one of them was that even though this is a tragedy, and it's you know the most tragic of tragedies, it's the great foundational tragedy in the West, it doesn't need to be tragedy with a capital T. Yeah, It can be tragedy that incorporates irony, that incorporates comedy, that incorporates the uncanny, that has a lot of different emotions going through it. But in order to make that work, 
I also broke some rules from Greek tragedy. That's part of the adaptation process. That's actually part of the creativity. One of the things that I break, that you also break, is the fourth wall. The fourth wall is the invisible wall between the cast and the audience. Most of the time when you see a show in a proscenium, the cast is in its own little world sealed off from us. We are pure spectators. Yeah. And, and that's good and, and lovely, and there's all sorts of advantages to that. Early on, like page three or four, the chorus starts talking to the audience. And that should be discomforting. Yeah, The audience should be like, wait, I, I didn't know I was in this play. And not even us as a mass of an audience, but like individual chorus members talking to individual audience members sometimes. And that's to solve a problem. That's to solve the problem of affinity or sympathy. Yeah. The original Athenians sitting on that hill watching the Argives on stage would have already been able to make the connection that these subjects are a bit like me. We don't have that. We feel a distance between us and, understandably, a 2,500-year distance between us and these works. So by breaking the fourth wall and by having the cast on stage start addressing the audience like their peers, and they are, that is one, it's going to be a little comical sometimes because breaking the fourth wall can make us laugh out of discomfort. And it's going to be uncomfortable a lot because discomfort is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And then it seems associated with another problem that has to do with the difference between us and the Athenians, which is familiarity with the backstory. Yeah, there's a lot of students on campus at Trinity who've read the Iliad by Homer and in which you get at least a slice of that Trojan War. And maybe others are familiar with some of the mythology that grounds the backstory, but not like the Athenians. I mean, this was really referential stuff to things that were widely familiar in a way that our audiences just can't be expected to be. How did you bridge that gap as a translator? So that was another choice to be made, and I made it on both ends of the spectrum. One is, if there were allusions to gods or myths that the audience wouldn't know and that I felt wasn't absolutely crucial to the meaning of my version of the play, I cut it. So like the chorus talks about the god or the hero Asclepius at one point about how he does something he shouldn't, which is he raises someone from the dead. That's the art of medicine taken too far. <laughs> you can cure anything, but you shouldn't cure death. And so Zeus zaps him with a lightning bolt and he dies. That's even right now, me explaining it, that took a lot of time to explain. A Greek audience, they would know who Asclepius is. His temple is actually behind the theater. They're actually looking at it. And I don't have any of those helps. So I got rid of that. But most of the time I did it the other way around. If there were an illusion to which, an illusion which was crucial for the meaning of the play and that I felt like the local audience would know, which is going to be most of them, because I don't assume anyone even knows where the Trojan War happened. They probably don't know where Troy is. I put in exposition meaning I put in a character that says, this is what happened, X, Y, and Z. And I tried to do it as kind of clearly and concisely and as meaningfully as possible so that when the rest of the scene, which is also often really hard and really complex because it's a dense play, is meaningful. And that creates this interesting thing where the chorus is sometimes in the role of playing characters, these elders of Argos who have their opinions and are interrogating Clytemnestra, let's say, or welcoming Agamemnon, comforting Cassandra, who I'd like to get to in a moment. But sometimes they're storytellers. Sometimes they're reenacting old myths. Sometimes they're playing Calchas or playing Agamemnon or even Iphigenia. 
So there's this interesting dual role where part of the breaking the fourth wall you talked about is this invocation of the past through narrative in a way that might almost feel epic. Absolutely. So the most difficult part of the Agamemnon, I feel, is the first third. Yeah. Because that's mostly chorus and they're mostly narrating events before the play, which throws us, the modern audience, off guard. We don't usually think that that's what happens in a play that you hear about what happened before the play. That's, we were like, we're here to see the play. So what I did is I took a long passage about the events at Aulis, which is the island where Agamemnon needs to sacrifice his daughter, which is in the original play. That is all narrated in the original play in the third person. And I made it its own little playlet. Yeah. It's like a meta play. I have the chorus realize it's crucial for them to get across to the modern audience what happened at Aulis, because what happened with there was terrible, and it is the beginning, the the beginning of the end. And if you don't have that beginning pellucid, completely clear, the rest of the play isn't going to work. Yeah. So I wrote it as a play because we understand plays, right? And yet it has a different quality as a playlet than the rest of the play in that there's some distance. It's still the chorus members acting out these old stories without fully becoming these other characters. And this was the decision we talked about early on when, you know, should we see Agamemnon before we see Agamemnon? And what does it mean to do that? Does that spoil the arrival of Agamemnon? And the fact that in the play where he's the titular character he doesn't show up for quite a long time but his absence is marked by everybody talking about him and so we made the decision that yeah we would have him invoked kind of put on in this way rather than sort of be continuous with other parts of the play yes so one of the curiosities of the structure of the play that even though it's called agamemnon and he seems to be the title character and he is certainly the title death He's not on stage very much. We haven't timed it yet. 10 minutes, maybe. Max. And he doesn't show up until about the halfway point, a little more even. Yeah. So in the original production, everyone would be waiting for this guy. Like, when is this person going to come back from Troy? When is it going to come back from Troy? And we didn't want to spoil that effect by having the tension from when will Agamemnon come home and the return of the king. But I think we solved our problem Yeah. by having a different actor a different chorus member who inhabits or invokes the role of Agamemnon way back when, when he was a different man, in a way. It was before everything went to pot. And so I think we have our cake and eat it too. We'll find out in a month. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, I think that's really interesting too by how it jumbles the past and the present. You talk to the cast about how of all of the plays in the Oresteia, Agamemnon is the one where the present, the past and the future are mixed up in the most perplexing ways. And one of the most haunting characters for me in any drama, even modern theater, and including Elizabethan theater and Chinese Zaju plays, all of it, one of the most very haunting characters ever is Cassandra, this one-time priestess of Apollo who's been captured and enslaved by Agamemnon and brought back as a war prize. And she can see the future. She can also see this weird past without seeming to have been introduced to mm. what happened at, at Alice. Actually, she sees much further back than that. She sees what happened in the house of Atreus. And I want to get to that deep past of Thyestes and the house of Atreus in a moment. But first, what's the deal with Cassandra? 
who is she and what is she doing here dramatically? So I really grappled with Cassandra because it's a very difficult scene. It's just like Agamemnon, it's sort of a one and done. Agamemnon just has one scene and then leaves. Cassandra has a subsequent scene and then leaves. It's parallel. They both walk to the tapestry inside the house to their death. This long red carpet that Clytemnestra rolls out that goes right up to the double doors in the palace and Agamemnon walks on it and then later Cassandra walks on it. And it's famously overdetermined. It's red with purple from creatures of the sea, meaning it was incredibly expensive. So it signifies royalty, just like royal purple now. But it also, because it's crimson, signifies death. Blood. Uh, It's the pointer to their slaughter. So the problem with Cassandra is she can't affect the plot. That's also the joy of Cassandra, (laughs) of thinking about her, is she knows everything. She's a prophetess who knows the past. She knows everything that's happened. She's the only person who really gets what's happening on stage now. And most urgently or most pregnantly, she knows what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes and also maybe even in the next like year. Yeah. The knowledge of events from everyone else's point of view is occluded. Everyone else has bits and pieces of the past or bits and pieces of the present or guesses for the future. But Cassandra knows. She can see. She can see. Literally, she talks about these visions and she can is gripped with the ability to see what will happen. The problem is that back in Troy, because she's a Trojan, she's the, the daughter of King Priam, she had had, there are various versions of the myth, either a marriage or sexual tension with Apollo. Apollo had given her a gift of prophecy, but because the relationship, well, because he's a powerful God and- I mean, it's a kind of sexual violence. It was a, it's a type of sexual violence and she rejects Apollo, rightly, and he's mad and takes away not her gift of prophecy, she can still see, but takes away her persuasion, her gift of persuasion. Yeah. Actually, her, her gift of telling. No one will believe her. Every prophecy that she gives about the fall of Troy, about the murder of the king, no one will believe her. That's her curse. And so in the Agamemnon, she is desperately telling everybody what's about to happen. This awful, awful political crisis was about to happen, the murder of the king. And no one will believe her because they don't believe her version of the future. And then there's the overdetermined factor that on the one hand, it's too horrible to believe. Second, well, how could she possibly know that? Like, I'm reminded of Greta Thunberg being disbelieved about the climate apocalypse is that it's just, listen, we don't want to acknowledge that this could happen. But there's also the idea that she comes in talking Trojan, as you translated, right? She's not, she's not Greek, even though she can speak Greek. She's treated as this other, this foreigner who is sort of condescended to, can't be respected. Yeah, and I would like to give a shout out to my one-time colleague at Rice, Hillary Mackey, who wrote a book called Talking Trojan. And, and I swiped, I've swiped the oh, title. It's a great title for a book. The book is about the different ways that Trojans and Greeks speak, which is curious because you know in the Iliad, all the Trojans are speaking Greek, even though yeah. if you think about it, they shouldn't be speaking Greek at all. It's an epic convention that your opponents speak the language of the victors. And so there's a line that we put in the play that she says... Cassandra happens to know Greek, she's bilingual, but I might as well be talking Trojan. It's as if I'm speaking a different language from all of you and you can't understand me. So 
that's a fascinating scene, all sorts of ironies, because you usually think that people can't understand her. Right. But from the her point of view, it's like, no, you don't get me. Like, we're mutually unintelligible. Right, which means they actually don't get their own predicament. Because it's often said that Clytemnestra is the ultimate kind of actor and director of Agamemnon. She sets up what will happen. She puts on this extraordinary performance so that when Agamemnon comes home, she flatters him, convinces him to walk on the tapestry. She plays this role. And then she ultimately describes herself as kind of this vessel for vengeance in a very actorly way. Who knows? Maybe Aeschylus played Clytemnestra way back when. And she's an ultimate director in that she literally pushes along the action. But Cassandra, her affinity is with Aeschylus as the playwright. Even though Clytemnestra does the things, she only does them once Cassandra has already seen and said the things. So there's a way that in not understanding Cassandra, the chorus doesn't understand their own play in a way that it's like, she sees the play. She's been talking to the playwright. And that's an instance where the chorus is not the audience. Yeah. Where the chorus is like, we don't understand, we don't understand. But the ancient audience and the modern audience, right. we get it. Like, we know that she's right because we've all heard of Agamemnon. We know he's going to die. Or we've read the Odyssey and we know he's going to die. And so even though we've, you and I have gone to great pains for two-thirds of the play to make an affinity between the chorus and the contemporary audience, that one scene is dramatic irony again. Yeah. Where in this own little play, the chorus, they just don't get it. So what does it mean for us as audience members to flip from identifying with these old men who were left behind for 10 years while the Trojan War carried on to flip our allegiance with them to our allegiance with this non-Greek where for the Athenian audience to identify with this Trojan, the enemy? So I think that is part of the, as Aristotle would put it, the fear and pity aspect I don't think you're afraid in this scene because she's not, well, or you will be at the end. But I think pity is all over it. There is no more pathetic character in that drama, including Agamemnon, than Cassandra. Because she sees her own fate, too. She sees her own fate. She is completely innocent of anything that is about to happen to her. And she can't persuade anybody even to save themselves, much less herself. She, she's given up trying to save herself. She's desperately trying to help the chorus, who, after all, are her enemies, yeah. or at least they're the subjects of an enemy state, and they, they just don't get it. You know, we get that early on, it's set up by the Herald, and even by what some of the chorus says, that Agamemnon has committed atrocities in Troy. So it's extra surprising for her to worry about what's going to happen to him when she, I mean, her whole family is annihilated by him. Her temple of Apollo is desecrated by him and by the Greeks. And then for her to have such concern for what's going to happen here is really haunting. The other thing that is really haunting for the chorus and maybe the Athenians, maybe us, is that she sees the deep, deep past, the way that this house, its problems go back a lot further than the sacrifice of Iphigenia. And before I get into that, I mean, in the fact that she's innocent of everything that's going to happen and cursed, she's also doubles Iphigenia herself. She's a sacrifice. She's somebody who is this 
female character who doesn't deserve what happens to her and essentially gets killed by some Greek tyrant. So you bring up an interesting part of her prophecies when she starts doing a bunch of, not exposition exactly, but she's trying to tell the chorus how this all began. And that's the first time in the play when you realize that Aeschylus is moving the goalposts of what the beginning is. Like, what's the house of Atreus? (laughs) Exactly. So up to this point in the play, the beginning and the end seems to have been the sacrifice of Iphigenia. Most of the characters in the play, when they start telling stories of the Trojan War, begin with that. Or perhaps with the elopement of Helen. Cassandra, though, says, no, there's a different beginning to all of this. And that's the house of Atreus, the fall of the house of Atreus. So Agamemnon is a son of Atreus. Atreus has a brother named Thyestes. The two have a quarrel. Thyestes had seduced his brother's wife. Atreus pretends that there's a reconcilement. He offers to create a banquet for Thyestes. Thyestes joyfully accepts this reunion with his brother, has this great dinner. Delicious. Delicious dinner. And at the very end, Atreus then pulls out the head and hands of his children And that's when Thyestes realizes he's just eaten his own children. Ugh. Ugh. That's kind of the Seneca version, which then gets redone by Shakespeare. Talk about reception as Titus Andronicus or a main part of the plot of Titus Andronicus. So Thyestes then, since there's nothing else he can do, he's just eating his children. You can't uneat a child. Um, Believe me, I've tried. (laughs) Who hasn't tried to uneat a child? He then curses the house of Atreus the descendants of the house of Atreus, meaning Agamemnon and his brother Menelaus, both of them whom obviously have terrible troubles, and Agamemnon will be killed by his wife. So Cassandra comes up with a completely different Etion, kind of beginning of the end. And that's fascinating in a play which is going to be more and more political, even in our sense of political. It's like, where has everything begun? Right. Do our social issues, did they begin 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 150 years ago? When does time begin in a polis, in a city-state? And Cassandra says, no, you don't understand. The rot in this house goes back way more than eight years ago. We're talking 30. And then you can keep going back in time, um, and various characters will. But that's also Aeschylus kind of pulling the rug out from all of us. We didn't know that there was going to be this kind of Thyestes narrative sequence. Yeah, this... it, was an, it was enough for Agamemnon to have slaughtered his child. Do we really need an overdetermined reason why this is a tragedy? Right. And for us to see it as part of this deep time, this like, wow, this is like a force of nature. This is like, it's not quite geological time, but there's a sense of it's humbling. And tragedy is nothing if not humbling. That whatever pretensions to greatness or oh, the victory is over, the war is done, mm-hmm. you find out oh, crap, that was just the beginning. Or that the thing that you thought was the beginning was actually just an episode in a much, much larger epic saga. Yeah, because everyone in the play, except for Cassandra, they think that the play is going to end when the play ends. And it was a challenge for me, actually, to discover what I could do to make this play feel like its own play. Yeah. When it's actually just a beginning of a much larger story. So let's talk about that, because for years I've been proposing, plotting, scheming, like Clytemnestra, to have us do the Oresteia over the course of a year at Trinity. 
and do all three plays. But for lots of reasons, some practical, some just thinking about how different parts of the season go together, we decided just to do Agamemnon. So how do you see it playing as a standalone piece that sets up a future that it doesn't then fulfill? So yes, so the next two plays continue the story. In the next play, Orestes, who's the son of Agamemnon, will come back to avenge the death of his father. He kills his mother and his mother's lover. He is then driven mad because he has done a, well, he's killed a member of his family. In the second and then into the third plays, he is given a type of absolution, but it's not enough. And the whole play ends with a trial scene in which Orestes argues for his life that what he did was justified against the Furies, who are these chthonic, these kind of underworld goddesses, who punish those who have killed members of their own family. And speaking of deep time, the Furies are much older than Olympian gods. Yes, absolutely. So when Cassandra is starting to talk about you know, eating children and that sort of thing, and the curse that comes out of that, that's a sort of like dark magic, scary primordial world of pre-justice. How do you do justice before a law court? You curse people. Yeah. Um, and the Furies are all into that sort of thing. Furies are, are goddesses of cursing at the beginning of the play. They then transform into the humanities. That's why it's called the kindly ones. They become good goddesses at the end. Who do agriculture. Who do agriculture, and they make sure that the harvest is good this fall. And therefore um, that the polis flourishes, that democracy grows. And none of that we're doing. Right. <laughs> so you're like, wait, how could you cut all of that? It's not that we're cutting it. We're just not getting to it yet. Gesturing forward. We're gesturing forward. And, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll do play number two and play number three in the future. Lots of theater companies do the whole Oristai at once, all three plays at once. But if they do it, then they have to radically cut. Because yeah. if you were to run all three plays without cutting a line, it would be like Hamlet. It would be like over four hours which Athenians could do. We know that they did, but they have all day. <laughs> it's an all day ceremony. You would run the three plays and then a Seder play. So back to your question, what decisions or what choices did we make in order for the Agamemnon to feel like its own play? One is that characters are always making claims within the play about where they are in the story. Yeah. Whether they're in the beginning, the middle, the end, they're all wrong. <laughs> So there's a continual thread of irony throughout the Agamemnon. Everybody thinks that they're in a complete play, and they're not. Yeah. Uh, they're just in chapter one. And I try to make that especially clear with, spoiler alert, at the end of the play, when Clytemnestra has the two bodies in front of her and declares that the play is over, that there is no more play. There's no more drama, she says, meaning there's no play two and three. This yeah. is it. We know, because we're Athenian slash Americans, that there's so much more that's going to happen. And so for me, that play works, the ending works entirely by irony. I know that you're thinking about having even a visual reminder that the play is not over by having a glimpse, a shadow, a sign of Orestes with a dagger or a sword about to come on stage. I think that'll be an amazing way to end. Mm. Yeah, and I think it makes all the sense in the world for us to give all of that away ahead of time because... This is not a play, it's never been a play, that works by surprising the audience. Cassandra sees it coming. It's all kind of in myth already. And we, somebody, knows what the next plays are. Yeah, so the only surprise in the play 
Well, there are some surprises, but they're not necessarily the surprises for the modern audience. Aeschylus's Orisaia has become so influential, it's so foundational to a lot of philosophy that we just take it for granted that Clytemnestra is the killer of Agamemnon, of her husband. In most versions of the myth, as far as we can tell, that is not the case. Usually it's a just this, her lover, a man, and also, I guess, Agamemnon's cousin, who does the murder. Clytemnestra is a support. She's a help. She paves the way. But Aegisthus is usually the murderer of Agamemnon. This play reverses the power dynamic and makes Clytemnestra by far the most powerful person in the play. So in a play that uh, many would think of as the most foundational you could get for Western drama, the most er play of er plays, it's already fanfic. It's already a reimagining of tragedy. Aeschylus, right from the get-go, is already riffing and changing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So there's a famous quote from antiquity that drama is just slices from the banquet of Homer. Right. And this is a slice from the banquet of the Odyssey. So in the Odyssey, you get the Orestes myth in a different version. And that's one of the reasons that Odysseus is explicitly told, be careful when coming home, because what if your wife, Penelope, turns out to be like a Clytemnestra? Fantastic. And for that reason, Clytemnestra isn't just this, you know, villainous either. She becomes this kind of fierce anti-hero who enacts this revenge that will make sense to a lot of people. You killed my daughter. Now you have to die. Oh, Uh, absolutely. I think the play would be flat if she didn't have a point. Yep. And I, I have to say, Clytemnestra, it really is her play in so many ways. And she is such a powerful figure and an icon, really. So I'm super excited about this production. I love your translation. It's been a a joy to work with you. And I encourage everyone to come see it. You've already extended some invitations to San Antonio high schools, but you have any final parting words about why people might want to come and see your, our Agamemnon? I swear the parts of it are kind of funny. (laughs) I know that people are scared by Greek tragedy. They think it's going to be unrelievably grim, but we've worked really hard to make it lively and vibrant and with lots of variety in it. Yep. Including a very dark humor, that morbid humor, but it, it is. It's delightful. It's a joy in its own strange way. Thanks for coming on Sentience. It's been so great to talk to you and, of course, to continue working with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Agamemnon opens February 16th, Friday, at the Steering Theater at Trinity University. It's free and open to the public. Reservations are available at Trinity Theater's website. We will also be having two talkbacks. The first is a roundtable discussion about vengeance, justice, and the foundations of democracy after the Sunday matinee, which starts at 2.30. The Thursday night performance will be followed by another talkback about the play and the process of translating and adapting it. Thank you for listening to Sentience.